your own beer it's time for just brew it brought to you by niagara tradition homebrew here's your host jeremy white and bert deister good saturday morning welcome to niagara traditions just brew it on espn 1520 jeremy white with bert deister as we uh bring you our hop growing guide today if you tuned in hoping for more on barley wine we're gonna get there Hop growing is too timely to put off any longer. You got it. We've gotten the rhizomes in. People are going to start getting uh, their rhizomes via mail or picking them up in the store, and they're going to wonder what the devil to do with them. The barley wine is going to sit around for a couple of months, years, hopefully, so we can put that off a little bit more. All right, so we'll get to the hop growing guide today, but first, uh, congratulations in order. AWOG results are in. The uh, Amber Waves of Green Brewing Competition results are in. Best in show goes to a familiar name and – just the fact that we're saying his name again is a big deal. You got it. And so he won the second place best of show in our Niagara homegrown competition. Uh, his name is Kevin Detundo, so we'd like to put a congratulatory out there for him. Also third place best of show, uh, Tim Belzik with his fast beer. Uh, but Kevin took first and second best of show. That's rare. That's rare. That's really rare. And especially, you know, I don't know if Kevin minds you saying this. He hasn't been brewing that long. <laughs> but he's really been putting a lot of focus into, you know, kind of progressing his beers. He's obviously entering competitions. Um, so from second place, best of show, from a little, you know, 20 beer, 24 beer competition to first and second best of show in a, uh, I think it was, you know, it was 500 plus. I don't know if they broke wow. 600 Jeez. entries. Uh is quite an accomplishment. So now, congratulations. Privacy rights and all. How long has he been brewing? Because if you're a new brewer and you are still intimidated by these competitions, the fact that you could be consistently, I mean, winning might not be something to count on every time, but you know, that you could make beers this good, yeah. how quickly? Um, I say Kevin's been brewing for a couple of years. We'll say two to two, two to three okay. con- consistently. And I may be putting my foot in the mouth, so I'll have to actually ask him okay. and find out if he's been brewing a little bit longer. That's just when we started seeing him. But he quickly moved on to Augrain when he came to us. Um, and then he joined a local club, Das House Brewers. And, and so that kind of builds a support group as well and people to kind of give you, uh, well, you know, an armchair opinion of your beer. But month after month, try your beer, see how they're progressing. He started entering competitions. And those kinds of Lack of fear of feedback um, really is what's going to help progress you in this hobby. Now, you said Das House Brewers. This is where I use my Sherlock Holmes skills and think they make German beers. Are they like German or they kind of. No, they make it all over. Now, now, he won won with the Kolsch. He won won with the Kolsch. with the Pills. Um, He got a a Kolsch and a Munich Dunkel. Um, But they're a Southtown homebrew club. Um, They brew all across the board. And uh, yeah. And, And Kevin, if you want to talk about some karma. Very often, um, because he works near us, but brews in the Southtown Club, ends up picking up ingredients for other brewers on his way home from work. Gotcha. So I'm sure they're appreciative of that. He's earned it. Uh, Meanwhile, the Uniha deadline is April 26th, so you still have uh, a little less than a month Mm -hmm. to get an entry in for the Upstate New York Home Brewers Association competition. That's April 26th for that deadline. Also on the way, May 6th is National Homebrew Day, the celebration of – that's when you guys are celebrating it. The day is the 7th. The but day is the 7th. We're going to celebrate Why do they make it on a Sunday? If it's, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's why do we have more winter holidays in the U.S. than we do summer. Right. I, I don't know. Somebody should figure it so out. So what will you guys do for National Homebrew Day? Well, it's our 25th year of business, and so we're going to have a big tasting um, and kind of celebration. We're going to have our normal 
beginning brewing class, and if you're looking to sign up for that, it's going to start at 11 o'clock in the morning, and the tickets will show up online. And so the first way to find out about those is to join the email newsletter. After that, we're going to have a tasting and kind of all-grain brewing demo at 1.30. Now, if you haven't been to one of these all-grain brewing demos, quote-unquote, um, what happens is, is a lot of people come for the tasting. A lot of these people are experienced brewers, the same kind of brewers who have entered competitions, been in clubs, if you kind of see where I'm going with it. And what they're going to do is they're going to hang out, we're going to hang out, and we're going to brew a batch of beer, and you get to ask questions and kind of see it all grain. So this isn't a formal class. It's not a sit-down class. But you get to mingle, you get to have drinks, and you get to see how it's done. Now, a little bit different this year, uh, me and Kevin were talking at the store. Now, we always end up brewing these beers in store ahead of time for you to try in these tasting. And what we're going to do this year is we're going to kind of let you in on the brewing process for these beers. So on Saturday, April 8th, Kevin's going to brew a New England-style IPA, so a, a very stone-fruity, creamy, light-bodied IPA, and he's going to do a single-infusion mass, and that's going to be starting around 11 a.m. on April 8th. And then I'm going to attempt a party guile barley wine and brown porter on April 22nd. Obviously, the barley wine's not going to be ready for the spring tasting on National Homebrew Day. We'll probably serve that out on Teach a Friend to Homebrew Day in the fall. But the brown porter, the second runnings, will be available um, on May 6th. All right. So plan accordingly for the weekend of May 6th for National Homebrew Day and the celebration at Niagara Tradition. Now, on the Hop Growing Guide, which is going to be pretty much the rest of the show today, uh, on the Hop, Rome pre, uh, hop Rhizome pre-orders, you should be getting them soon. Yes. How soon? Next two weeks. Okay. So what's happened is, is we've gotten rhizomes from multiple suppliers. We're going to begin checking those pre-orders, labeling them, putting your name on them, packaging them to ship it out, or giving you a call uh, to come pick them out. And it's so, not too late to order some still. You got it. So if you want to order, you know, putting an order in online will help guarantee you get the rhizome that you want. Otherwise, just give us a call or come on in, and we can sort through the bin and grab you a rhizome. Now, hop rhizomes are, of course, perennial, so they're going to come back every year. So maybe you know someone listening just need to buy them because they're planning on just getting yeah. their crop back if this year. If you're planning on brewing in the next couple years, too, it's going to take two to three years for that rhizome to really establish itself and start producing hops. So if you're looking to procrastinate, plant the rhizome now and start brewing in two to three years, you'll have this wonderful crop of hops waiting for you. Um, the nice thing about hops is, too, the above-ground portion dies back every year. And it doesn't root um, and kind of dig into foundations or lattice uh, like English ivy would. It tends to tendril. And so what it does is it needs some help training. And that kind of is a little bit of a help to us. So when the rhizomes first come out of the ground, you usually tie a little bit of jute twine to them, tie them up to whatever you want it to climb. And while they first get started, you may have to help them wrap around. They're always going to wrap around. They're never going to dig into a foundation. And that means at the end of the year, you just cut them back off the ground and pull them all down, and they're not going to damage anything on the way down. Yeah. So a little bit of lattice or a fence, a lattice, anything works. Yeah, and, and usually... A pole? Well, I mean, will a pole work, or are you going to want them to spread more? It's, a pole is ideal, okay. um, and I don't know how many home brewers are going to be putting in 15 to 20-foot cedar poles into their yard. For most people— It's a big pole. Yeah. For most people, this is growing up along a fence, growing to an eave of a house, maybe along the side of a garage or someplace like that. Um, so that brings us to a first topic. Where do we want to plant these? Obviously, the 
better the light, the better. And if everybody in the household, the town ordinance code was okay with you putting a you know 20-foot cedar pole in the front yard, right in the middle where it gets the most light, that would be best for the rhizome. But we're not commercial growers. We're usually not aimed at peak harvest anyways. Um, put it where you ornamentally want it. More sun, the better, but put it where you want an ornamental. The only thing I really tell people to watch out for is any place where you see standing water year after year. So if you have a section in the garden that you're trying to fill because it's a big puddle every spring, this is not going to be the plant to fill it. Um, they like well-drained, loamy soil. So pick a spot that doesn't see standing water uh, and that for the first year you're going to be able to water. So if it's way off at the back of the backyard and you don't have a hose to get there, put it someplace else. So it needs something to climb and it needs good draining soil. Okay. We can, we can kind of change the soil, obviously, around a little bit. Um, a lot of people ask, do I need to make a mound? Because they hear about mounding and hops. No, you don't have to, but it does make the process a little bit easier, especially starting out with a first-year rhizome. So what you usually would do is till a section of soil, usually about 17 inches by 2 to 3 feet for the rhizome. Supplement it with either you know sphagnum moss or uh, a little bit of like a organic fertilizer. I would use the same fertilizer that you would for tomatoes or zucchini or something that you plan to eat. So stay away from anything that has high nitrates or high phosphates. Um, after that, what you're going to do is take a little more of the material and gently mound it over the rhizome, only about two to three inches high, so that the rhizome doesn't have to push out of the ground much. And so the idea is, if you're going to be there, if you're going to be watering it every couple of days, that you would rather give it an easy pass to sunlight and nice loose soil for it to begin growing a rhizome. Um, but again, it's not going to hold the water as much. You're going to have to water it a little bit more. So pick a good spot. And when to plant, get them in the ground as fast as possible. Mine are already starting to come up a little bit. They are a frost-tolerant plant. And like we always say, the earlier the better. If you get them in early this year, not only might you get a harvest at the end of the first year, but you're almost guaranteed to get one at the end of the second year. And you're going to see for the first couple of years the kind of progress that you're got from planting a little bit earlier. So if anything, planting early is going to show exponential results during the process. How tolerant is frost tolerant? In I've never lost a plant from frost. So you don't want to quite say in I've invincible. But I wouldn't say invincible. If they get hard frozen and simply sometimes it's like a combination of frost and ice storm, it will just break them off. Mm -hmm. But light frost, you know, anything under like 12 hours, they seem to do just fine. When I've had damage on other elements of the garden, whether it's a you know fruit tree or something like that, the hops have not been damaged. They've done quite well. You mentioned they will twine around and, and the tendrils will climb. Will they ever choke off other plants? Yes, they can. Um, so that's an issue. Um, keeping them, while they're easy to train, so let me, let me say that. Um, if they start to kind of spread out, you can easily cut them back. They're growing from a rhizome. Cutting back a couple of shoots is not going to kill the rhizome. Um, you do want to worry about them, say, if you had something nearby that's going to be narrow enough for them to wrap around. Uh, so if you had a small shrub and you let it go out of control, you didn't force them to train where you wanted to, they will take over. The one place where they often tend to take over is in the ground around the rhizome. Um, and they tend to spread out their rhizome as much as they can. Now, they won't tend to shoot up new binds down the rhizome 
without a lot of assistance, they will kind of take that ground space. And so one thing I've noticed is where I've planted them, stuff within, you know, five, six feet that is planted nearby doesn't do as well as stuff that is 10 feet away. And that's because those roots are competing for water and nutrients. So don't expect them to kill whatever's around them, but they will be competing, especially underground for water. And will the rhizome, I know it's like a, it's a long, almost like cylindrical look to it, right? Like, mm-hmm. will it? It will spread out. It will web out and kind of okay, look so like it won't a, go. it won't grow in a line. It'll... It will grow in all. It'll go two-dimensional. You got it. Three-dimensional, I, yeah. I guess. Until it hits some barrier or gets, you know, like about 15 to 20 feet away. Gotcha. Is there any way that anyone that wants to put this in a garden should introduce barriers, should introduce... It will It will help. And I try to keep all my plants separated by barriers. So generally they say you want to keep at least, I would say, four to six feet between rhizomes of different varieties. And and this is to prevent losing track of which rhizome is which over time. Um, But a physical barrier is even better. So if you can plant them on opposing sides of a driveway or opposing sides of a house, a garage, even better. Because that's going to physically block them from intertangling and possibly, like I have in the past, losing track of which rhizome is which. Mm -hmm. And they will kind of grow up into one plant while they're physically not one plant you won't be able to tell the difference because they'll be so intertwined okay back on the other side we've got more for this your hop growing guide uh as we roll along here on not traditions of just brew it on espn 1520 jeremy white here for niagara tradition home brewing supplies you're listening to just brew it which means Either you homebrew or you're thinking about it. Wherever you are in the process, Niagara Tradition Homebrew is your source for everything homebrewing. Do what I did. Get a starter kit, and you'll be well on your way. Niagara Tradition will be there to answer your questions, give you advice, and as I try to become a more seasoned brewer, I know I can count on Niagara Tradition to be there with the supplies and the advice I need. Niagara Tradition Homebrewing Supply, 1296 Sheridan Drive, near Military, in Tonawanda. Open Monday through Friday, 11 to 7, Saturdays, 10 to 4, and 24-7 at nthomebrew.com. Niagara Tradition Homebrew. Pay them a visit, and remember to just brew it. All right, welcome back to Niagara Tradition's Just Brew It, your hop-growing guide as you start to get those pre-orders for your rhizomes in. Uh... Bert's here to help you figure out exactly your plan of attack. We've already done uh, where to plant. We also talked about mounding and the peak time to plant. So what's the next step in the process? In the well, hop you've got guide? the hop planted, and now they're going to want to climb. And you're going to have to help them out a little bit. And so that's the one reason why we're talking about it's not just going to immediately invade on the next plant over because they need a little help getting up, especially starting off. So usually what I do is I will have a trellis or uh, twine going up to a, a large peak. Again, this is like usually the eve of a house. Um, and what I'll do is I'll take some pieces of twine, tie them from the little shoots coming out, and to the uh, house and that's going to kind of help them find their way up to where I want them to climb. Once they find that direction they're going to continue a terminal bud in that direction hopefully not drift out to the side. Now a lot of growers will say that you should trim back all but three or four of the strongest growing shoots and while this is a great idea if you're again you're going for harvest and you have an established plant usually if it's a younger plant and you're trying to just help the rhizome develop a lot of glucose to help it get through the winter 
Uh, don't trim back those vines. Let it grow kind of all over the place, fanning out, attract a lot of light. Yes, you might not get an ideal harvest, um, but you're trying to build nutrients inside that rhizome, stuff that it can save for next year over. Um, as far as uh, how high, again, this kind of comes to a question of ornamental versus harvest. Mm-hmm. I always grow my hops as an ornamental first because once they get established, I usually get more hops than I know what to do with. So I always encourage people in their backyard gardens to plant the hops more with an eye to the ornamental. And so I can tell you, if you wanted them to cover a four-foot chain-link fence, they will do that, and they will grow just four feet high every year. Um, Yes, you're not going to get a great harvest. might be a little bit difficult to harvest them because you're going to be trying to pull them out of the chain-link fence, but they will do that. Um, so kind of look as far as how high you want them again. They'll grow up to 30 feet. Most people say you want to go at least 10 feet high if you're looking for a decent harvest. But if you're trying to cover a four-foot fence, they'll do that just fine. And the kind of last thing that people always ask is, how many should I plant? Well, obviously, if you're a home brewer and you have four or five locations, plant four or five different rhizomes. Then the other question is, how many do I plant you know, per mound? rhizomes tend to have a very high success rate uh, compared to sowing something from seed. And so if you are know you're going to give it good attention, you're going to be watering it off and you're going to be checking up on it, go ahead and plant one. If you're really nervous, go ahead and plant two. But the danger is, is that both of those rhizomes survive. They begin competing in that same location and neither really produces a great harvest because neither is getting the nutrients that it truly needs. So I always err on the side of only planting one rhizome and giving it as much attention as I can, and that seems to work well in the long term. Did you already mention how to make sure that it, it goes strongly? Like, is there a strategic way to, to prune them back to make sure that it is um, focused in the right spot? You're talking about how they'll grow up a four-foot fence. Do I want do I, do I want to keep it centralized to three, four stalks in the middle, or do I want to let it wet out? For Ideal harvest, you want three or four in the middle. If you're looking for an ornamental, you're going to want to take those terminal buds that come out and you want to move them off to the side. Because while it will grow new buds off from the base, it doesn't grow that many new terminal buds. So terminal buds are the ones that kind of force a plant out and where the actual um, linear growth is coming from in a plant. Um, If you train that, it's going to keep coming off in that direction. Whereas anything coming from the ground has a chance to veer. So new buds from the rhizome can veer off to the side. Once they get established, they're going to grow in a relatively straight line. So try to train them how you see fit for an ornamental. All right. Again, if you're peak harvest, you want the three or four strongest-looking vines and just focus on those. And that's everything you need to know about growing hops? Yes, it is. I think there's any other questions. I think we're good. If you have any more, send them in or give us a call. Yeah. And, again, pre-orders should be arriving uh, soon in the next few weeks. So let's get to barley wine a little bit, which uh, we can start today and we can roll into tomorrow. I think we started it last week officially, and we'll still be rolling it into We've talked about it a little bit here and there. Um, we, I, I can remember talking about last week the Bigfoot and the Flying Bison Herc. And like, they always have big, rough, and tough names because they are big, bold, 
Home beers. Yeah, Not mean, only will they stand up to whatever you have on your plate with the pairing, they will also stand up to long-term aging. So if you're looking for something to kind of collect dust in the basement, this is the perfect beer. So we talked a bit about where barley wines come from last week. And we'll start to get into a little bit of the brewing with the end of the show this week. Um, and the first thing that I was going to say that you want to look at um, when you're looking at a barley wine is deciding on an alcohol by volume and a yeast and you want to make sure that those two line up so if you're looking at a english yeast to brew an english style barley wine and the yeast only goes up to nine percent you shouldn't be trying to brew an 11 percent barley wine without supplementing that yeast with a, either a, you know a second strain of champagne yeast or super high gravity um, so first you want to do is look at your ABV that you're trying to get and look at the yeast you want to use because you want to make sure those line up. If they don't, you're going to run into a lot of problems down the road. And not only do you need to look at the alcohol tolerance of the yeast, you also need to look at the um, attenuation. If you are planning to start around 100 points of gravity, um, you don't want to necessarily pick a yeast that attenuates underneath 70%. The same way if you're starting one at 80 points of gravity, you don't want a yeast that's going to attenuate over 80%. And the reason is it's either going to leave you with a very sweet or a very dry barley wine. And we're shooting, I know the guidelines say 18 to 30. I kind of checked those before I came in. Um, I would say a lot of home brewers end up making theirs a little bit drier. We'll say 15, 14 points of finishing gravity. Um, so you want to make sure that say if you had a beer at, again, 100 points of starting gravity, and you picked a yeast that was 80% attenuation, you would end up at 20% terminal sugar, and you'd be right in that range. The second place that we want to look at where our sugars are coming from and how fermentable they are are in the mash. Um, and the one thing I warn brewers on when making a barley wine is be ready to hit some low efficiencies. Um, if I'm using nine pounds of grain to make a pale ale or a lager, I'm kind of going to assume I'm using, you know, 80 to 80% efficiency. Um, if I'm doing a barley wine at 18 pounds of grain, I usually plan for 60 to 65% efficiency. Um, and you want to account for that. And sometimes these, you know, barley wines can become a nose barge, meaning that the terminal or the gravity that you have at the end of the mash is really pretty much the same as the gravity that you want for the start of the boil. And therefore, by sparging any, um, you would dilute it down to a point where you'd have to either add adjuncts or extend the boil. Um, and this is where party guile brewing comes in. Um, and that's where there's still a lot of mash, there's still a lot of sugars left in the mass, and you want to drain those off. Um, again, back to the temperature, be careful on the mash temp. You're looking at about 154 at the highest and you want to do a long mash usually an hour or longer this is going to help create a lot of simple sugars so that's really going to help your yeast through fermentation so you're going to have a long mash going you're probably going to get a pre uh, boil gravity of 70 points hopefully you have enough that you can pull off six or seven gallons right out of your mash ton at almost 20 pounds of grain you should be adding almost seven to eight pounds of strike water so you should get that the idea is in party guile brewing, while you're dealing with getting the barley wine to a boil, and this is what I'll be attempting on the 22nd, you want to be trying to get another seven and a half gallons of sparge water for the second beer. And you're just going to take another beer off. Um, and it's pretty much at that point a free beer. Um, but that's about it for the mash. Now, get, I had a question in, right the, in, in there somewhere. What was it? It was... 
Oh, I was going to ask first off about the the party guile, like what what that comes from, that term. I don't know if you know that. You know, I'm not sure of the true uh, definition, whether it's a – it's usually used in English brewing. Um, It's not specific just to barley wines, party guy? No, no. Okay. And, um, I mean, you're talking about a second runnings, and I I think a guile refers to an old style of English. Okay. Mash ton. So I'm not – we'll look that up for next next show because we're going to keep going on the the barley wine here. Um, But that's definitely – one to look up. And, and I, I've, I've looked it up before. It isn't interesting. It's not everybody says, oh, is it Germans for second runnings? No, it's not. It's an English brewing term. And then the second question was, you're talking about how you're going to have to pull uh, some work out of your cooler in order to reheat it. You got it. Because it's in there for so long. So is that a delicate process? Do you have to be careful with that, or are you pretty safe? You're pretty safe. Because you're going to ultimately boil it anyway. So Yeah, and the other thing, what you worry about is creating caramelization or overshooting. Um, there's a lot of correction apps out there that are really nice right now that will tell you, okay, if you want to pull a gallon or if you want to bring uh, how much water up to a boil, if I'm at 148 and I want to get to, you know, 153, how much water is that? Um, if you're doing this for a first time and you don't have a correction app, grab about a half gallon, bring it up to a boil, and that should get you around 5, 6 degrees. Um, and do that as much as you need to to try to keep temperature. Yes, you're creating a little bit of caramelization, but you're also creating breakdown in the mash, and you always want to make sure that you have a lot of breakdown on a barley wine because you want a lot of simple sugars because you want your yeast to be able to healthily eat through those. But is this the part of the process that's maybe the most complicated of making the barley wine? Absolutely, and the patience to wait for it to age and kind of mature. But the mashing is where it gets a lot really hectic for some brewers because you you find yourself once you're hitting these low efficiencies you might need to use 20 pounds of grain if you're using a cooler and you can only keep temperature for 45 minutes um again if you have a louder ton it's really nice for this because of the long mash times you'll be able to kind of adjust the temperature along the way um but the bigger the mash ton the better because you're going to have 18 to 20 pounds of grain so usually if you say you have a smaller mash ton than kettle this is where it helps to have a very large mash ton and a lot of brewers decide to do a three gallon batch of barley wine um and a five gallon batch of the party guy will be which is often what i tend to do mm-hmm. and so it allows me to bring the grain bill down to 15 pounds i don't have to use a 15 gallon mash ton uh it makes everything quite a bit easier so we've got actually more to do on barley wines we'll have to wait for, oh, yes. the, for another show um but a good time to see a lot of this in process will be you at the national homebrew day celebration well not at the homebrew day celebration April twenty oh, second before. Yeah. So what we'll be trying to do is we're going to try to get the second running beer, the lighter gravity beer, the brown porter, out for you by National Homebrew Day. The barley wine won't be ready till November, and teach a friend to homebrew day, and probably really won't hit its peak until next National gotcha. Homebrew Day. But April twenty second, if you're thinking barley wine, this would be a good stop. Just you to, got it. Just to, to pop in out. and say hello. Yeah. All right. April 8th, the uh, Single Infusion Mash New England Style IPA, and then April 22nd, the Party Guile Barley Wine and Brown Porter, all leading up to uh, National Homebrew Day. Very good. All right, so maybe more barley wine next week. I think we'll finally wrap it up. We've (laughs) left a lot out. We've been giving it to you in parts because we had a lot of other stuff to talk about, but we promised you more on barley wine because we haven't covered them this far. All right, very good. That's it for us. Thanks, and uh, we promise to close things out next week on barley wine. We promise. If not, you'll just have to go brew one yourself. 
Listening to Just Brew It, brought to you by Niagara Tradition Home Brew. Whether you're a seasoned brewer or just want to get started, visit them at 1296 Sheridan Drive in Tonawanda or online at nthomebrew.com. And be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Just Brew It.